Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Cosmic Circle, the podcast for thecosmiccircus.com, your friendly neighborhood site for nerdy news. I'm Isla Ruby, and I'm here with my dear friends and fellow writers, Uday Kataria and Brian Kitson. How are you guys doing? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. Hi, how are you? How's everyone doing? I'm really good. I'm glad that, you know, we're through the new year and, and all of that. Um, so I'm trying to keep a straight face here because we're recording this actually before Christmas, even though we're going to air it afterwards. Um, so we're here to talk about, we're here to talk about Black Panther 2. And, you know, we have, I know there's some strong opinions and I know our friend Uday here is just dying to talk about it. So Uday, what do you, you want to start things off? Yeah, so I saw Wakanda Forever six times in theaters in about a month and a half, which is absolutely insane for me. That is tied with the second, it's tied for the second place of like the most times I've seen a movie in theaters. I worded that very awfully. Um, but it's tied with Infinity War and it's second only to Endgame. And right now it is above Endgame on my Marvel movie ranking uh, as like number one. Uh, but that might be a little bit of recency bias. So it might drop down. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge lover of Wakanda Forever. You've basically spent like almost an entire day of your life watching the movie. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah, nothing yes. wrong with that. There, you know, yeah. I unfortunately did that with Twilight and watched that too many times. <laughs> so we all have our our uh our strengths and our weaknesses. But Uda, I guess I'm wondering for you, what what makes it as good as Infinity War? Like that's a huge statement because Infinity War is so big. Um controversial take i don't think infinity war was that great um i i don't think it was bad i'm going to be very clear about that i love infinity war it's an iconic movie um but i really had to like force myself to like it when it came out in theaters for like at least opening night and then once i had seen it multiple times and like i accepted its flaws a little bit more i liked it but with Infinity War and Endgame i saw them so many times because i wanted to go with different friends different family members and of course, they were huge events uh, in the MCU. Like, we won't see anything like them again until, like, Secret Wars and Kang Dynasty. But for Wakanda Forever, I don't know. Like, I just, I really loved it that much. I wanted to, like, keep re-watching it. And, and I've said this, like, before, but I think that it's the best-paced, like, long movie I've ever seen. Like, I only started feeling the running time on, like, my fourth viewing, which I think is a testament to how well done it is. What's interesting about that to me is, you know, I've seen it three or four times now. And I think by the second time, my bladder felt it. So, like, I feel like that that while what you're saying, yeah, it was a great movie. It's a, a paste. It was super long to me. So even though it was good, that I think that that time definitely really wore me down a little bit. I saw it once. So I'm in the minority here. And the time, the time didn't bother me. But, like, it, it was like a very heavy movie. It was really well paced and really well done, but it's just like such big emotional stakes for me. Like I basically started crying from the moment, like I started watching it. So that was a lot for me to, you know, just have for that period of time. So I'm curious to see what you guys think about the emotional stakes and like whether or not it was a heavy movie or, or what. You know, about the emotional stakes, I think it's interesting because you mentioned that first scene. And I remember the first time I was sitting there in the theater and I, as that initial scene's kind of rolling, and you know, spoiler warning, we're going to be talking about some of the spoilers here. But as you start to hear like, like the beeping and the machines and the panic in these people's voices, and this was, you know, a group of people that have been very um, well put together. 
And so to see them kind of having this moment of like panic made me cry instantaneously. And every subsequent time that I went to go see the film, I actually started crying prior to the film starting because I knew what was coming. And I was like priming myself for that because it was hugely, it was this huge emotion from start to finish. Like the whole movie is about grief. And I guess the whole phase four is about grief, but that entire movie is just not just not just these characters, but this cast and crew grieving the loss of someone whose shoes we couldn't fill. Like we couldn't recast him. Um, and that I think that you had to feel that emotion. I think anybody that sees that's going to feel that emotion. I think you made that comment on our prior podcast too, that, you know, the actors and actresses and, and cast and crew really seemed like they were feeling it. They weren't acting like these were real emotions and they were really um, like they, they were just suffering and, and there was this loss. So I think that also makes it so much more powerful because it's a real thing. They really lost. I mean, we all lost somebody. They really lost somebody. I definitely think that you feel that emotion run through the movie. And that's why I was always like very against the idea of recasting T'Challa, because I think that when you see what's created in Wakanda forever and how cathartic and helpful to like the grieving process it was to the people that knew him. Um, I think that like the, the movie is very heavy. It definitely, it has a lot of emotional weight, Um like you guys have said, that opening scene is like, it, it hits you like a truck, especially the very first time you see it when you're just completely unprepared for it. But I have to say, like, once I'd seen the movie once and like kind of knowing what was coming, I didn't cry on my first viewing. I'm not a big like crier during movies, but I got like very close to it multiple times. And I guarantee like if I was home like alone and not in a theater full of people with like my friend next to me, I would have been like a crying wreck. Um, but 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 on subsequent viewings you kind of know what's coming and then also on subsequent viewings like I really felt like that kind of wave of grief like wash over you the first time you watch it and then the other times I watched it I was like digging more into like the little nuances and that's something that like I didn't love about the movie walking out of it the first time um and there's very little I didn't love but one of the things I felt was that uh, Shuri, who's obviously like the lead of this movie, the first time I felt like Ramonda was like a much bigger deal for like the first half of the movie. So I felt like Shuri didn't really solidify into the protagonist until Ramonda had died. Um, and I also didn't love Ramonda dying at first for personal reasons, because Angela Bassett is great. And then also because I felt like her grief kind of began to take like precedence over like the loss of T'Challa. And so I didn't like love those feelings, but then with each subsequent viewing, I felt that less and less. And I think that that's also like kind of what I liked about watching it multiple times is even the few minor things I didn't like the first time were pretty much gone by like the fourth viewing. So I didn't read spoilers or anything before going into this film. Like I didn't seek them out and I didn't realize that she was going to, Armando was going to die. And I was a little bit in disbelief in that scene that that, you know, that was what was happening. And um, I thought that, I, I thought that, um, you know, Shuri being held back and just all of that, I just, that was very, um, very powerful for me. And I thought that was really well done. And I agree with you. I think that was kind of like almost her inciting incident that kind of set her on um, like being the main character of the film. So I, I agree with you there. And I think and... that was a real turning point in her grieving process too, because you know, there, there, there's all these stages of grieving. And that was when she went from like refusing to 
like move on or like if you're refusing to like actually start the grieving process just you got to see that angry side of her and I know a lot of people are very upset about her being so angry but it makes sense because as someone who's grieving you have to start somewhere and hers was to start with anger and then get to acceptance and I think that acceptance scene was probably the best scene and the best payoff for what happened when we got to the end and she's hearing the wind and like that was another part that did make me cry because she finally kind of accepted this her role in all of this and the world that's now changed because she lost not only her brother who was important to her but her mom she has no support system anymore um and so i think that that's a really good launching point to see where she's going to go from there and i do want to say like about ramonda's death i knew like a couple little things going into the movie but i really tried to avoid spoilers so i didn't know that ramonda was going to die I was like, I knew like people were theorizing it. We had seen that scene with like Namor flying up to her in the trailer. But the whole time it was happening, I was just like, better to happen. And then just like the cut from like Ramonda's dying to her funeral, um, that's like that's also like very aggressive because like the movie started with T'Challa's funeral. It's like, that's the opening scene. You don't expect to see Shuri in that position again. And every single time I watched the movie, whoever I was with, like when it cuts to Shuri in her funeral clothes for the second time, like everyone like looks at me and they're always like, what, like, is this real? And I'm like, yeah, like it's, it's just insane. Do you think that was necessary for her journey? Like, do you think she could have had this journey at all without the loss of her parent? Because part of me wants to say yes, because again, Angela Bassett, I don't want to lose her. But at the same time, I think that it was necessary to have this very alone moment to really have that, to really start that process. I think she could have eventually got to the process of dealing with it. But I think that what you saw early in the film was a lot of people were handling her grief for her. Like her mom was being super protective. You don't take her out. You don't go show her the world, like stop what you're doing. Um, And then there's actually the guards who were there to protect her. And nobody's allowed her to actually have that grown up moment of, dealing with her grief on her own and so i think that you almost had to remove that that piece of the puzzle though i will say it's funny because when i saw it with my nephew he turned and looked at me and said quite loudly in this theater and he said what is with disney killing off parents and i was like that you're fair you're right but i think that it was really was needed for this disney definitely Uh loves to do that um be it with disney princesses or or anybody else um i think that I, i think you totally nailed it that Shuri, you know, needed to, it, it's, it's her kind of taking ownership for, for herself almost. She's got to, she has to, it's her making her own decisions on how she's going to deal with that. And I think we really see that too, when, you know, she takes the, the blue herb and, or the heart-shaped herb and the ancestor is Killmonger. Like that is, you know, that was her choice instead of, instead of her mom. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's interesting. I could we... I could talk about that scene for like hours. Um but I, was just sorry, I, just, I wanted I wanted to answer your question, Brian, about like, oh, like, do you think that the loss of um of Ramonda was necessary? And let me just say, Disney has done the Wakandan royal family so dirty. Like in two movies, three quarters of them are dead. And I know that one of our uh, fellow writers, Vin, he said that when Shuri was stabbed uh, through the stomach by Namor in the final battle, he thought that she was a goner with the way that Marvel's killing off the Wakandan royal family. And I also, I I didn't really think that she was going to die, but I was like, like the thought popped into my head. I was like, would they really kill her off too? 
Um, and I, I, I totally agree with like the alone part that like Shuri needed to be alone. Um, I'm also tempted to say that like they could have removed Ramonda in other ways, such as why could it Namor just kidnap her? Uh, but that would be out of a selfish want to keep Angela Bassett. Um, but also what kind of clicked for me is like I said, the first time I felt like Ramonda's death like overpowered T'Challa's to a degree that I didn't really love. But then I also realized that like Black Panther 2, like they rewrote Wakanda Forever in like a six-month span after Chadwick Boseman's death. And after seeing the movie so many times, I fully believe that Ramonda's death would be like was always in the script. I think that that was always like the big turning point, even when it was going to be about T'Challa, which seems really rude to him to kill his father in the first movie and then his mother in the second. Um, But when I kind of look at it through that lens of like Ramonda's death was like the kind of like inciting incident that like the entire movie revolved around in both iterations, um, I think it makes more sense to me why she died. And while I don't love it, I think that it was a strong choice that had had like good had a good effect on Shuri as a character. I will say about the idea of having Romanda kidnapped, while it would have been an interesting dynamic to see, I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying where there still would have been like some kind of like force and power to protect Shuri because Queen Romanda would still be alive. So the Queen Guard would still like, okay, you have to stay here and you have to be protected. We're going to go save the Queen and there would still be like this different power dynamic where the only thing that could happen now that everyone in her royal family is dead is that she has to step up. And so like that really changes and shifts a huge a huge perspective for her because there's not just anyone to 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 go back to. Um so I, as much as I think that would have been a cool idea, I don't know if like if you think about like the politics of it, I don't know if it would have worked out the way you wanted it to, but I think that it was definitely it's a good alternative. I think that Yeah, Shuri- no, I don't. Sorry, I was going to say like I don't I don't mean it as like a as like a good choice for the movie. I mean, <laughs> like as a good choice to keep Angela Bassett around. But yeah, I totally agree from that perspective, and especially like seeing how Shuri has to step up. Like Ramonda's death was unfortunately necessary, mm-hmm. um, and I think Angela Bassett knew it too, which is why she gave us the performance of a lifetime. It was such an incredible performance, and I agree with you guys. I wish she could have stayed around, but I think too, you know, if she had been kidnapped, there's. Um, so there's, I think, a line or a scene in in this movie where Shuri says that, you know, her her mom's hopes and dreams for her are, are gone because she's dead. And if she had been kidnapped, those hopes and dreams would still would still exist, too, because she isn't dead. And I think that, like, kind of makes the point there that she has to be dead for, like you guys said, for her to, for Shuri to, to evolve. I was going to say, I think the solution here is that Angela Bassett plays Ramonda's twin sister, in Black Panther 3. Well, I don't think this is the last time we see her. I think that there's definitely a part in Secret Wars where she's coming, either from the multiverse or the ancestral plane, because I still think that when Secret Wars and all the planets have come together in the incursion, I fully believe that both uh, Valhalla and the spiritual plane are going to be coming back because they're still just realities. And so I think that this is all going to come together and you're going to see her back and there's going to be this touching moment where she's going to see her mom and it's either going to resolve her or it's going to absolve her of all the guilt and the fear that she's had or that she's still carrying on to because even though we see her have that moment, I'm sure there's still going to be some stuff that she's dealing with emotionally. Um, But kind of going off of the the Queen Ramonda's death, I kind of have a question for both of you. Is just, you know, we spent all this time trying to 
um, humanize Namor. And like we spent the whole time, you know, under the sea, which was my least favorite part. I'm going to be honest with you. It felt like it was unnecessary because while they tried to humanize him within 15 to 20 minutes later, he's throwing a bomb and killing her, like killing Queen Ramonda. And that felt like that was an unnecessary trip for absolutely nothing. So like, what do you think of like Namor's journey here from like hero to villain to antihero, whatever it's kind of going on? I have a lot of thoughts about him and we haven't talked about the big M factor. The fact that he said he's a mutant, right? And that's kind of incredible for the MCU and just overall. Um, I will make a comment about the underwater stuff. I don't know. So, you know, when they're first, the CIA is first trying to get the um, vibranium under the sea and they have these big diving suits and they've got the drill and stuff. And there's the jellyfish. I kept thinking back to the movie Sphere and I was just like, waiting for Dustin Hoffman to like do something I don't know like it's just it it, like creeped me out a lot so I I agree maybe less underwater stuff and I was wondering you know it it was really well done I kept wondering about the technical aspects because like they were very clearly underwater for for a lot of this and I know that um Ryan Coogler learned to swim because a lot of their like his actors were uh underwater for filming this and he wanted to be able to do that as well so um I'm amazed at that, the technical aspects, but uh, it, it just kind of felt like we got the point that it was a really cool city. And I just felt like we were lingering a lot in there. So that's interesting because I don't agree with that. I I liked the underwater stuff a lot. And to me, that's what keeps the movie from feeling too long is that kind of like jolt of energy you get when Shuri like sees like Talokan for the first time. And I really loved that. I would say... Like, like the movie does slow down a little bit in the second act, like when you get to Namor and then, you know, there's a lot of flashbacks, like with his origin story. And then like, yeah, then you're going to Talokan and then he's doing like, I have to say that I thought Namor was doing the exact same thing as Killmonger, where he's like, we're going to take on every single country in the entire world because we're better than them. And that's not like a bad thing. It was just an observation. I don't think that they were very similar villains at all. But like that that conversation he had with Shuri, I was like, I was like, sure, you're stuck in a cycle. I was like, this this was you like pre snap. Um, <laughs> but I didn't think of it that way. That's that you're so right. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's the same thing. It's we're better than them because we have vibranium. So let's go uh, attack every other country. And honestly, I don't get Namor's plan. Like, was Namor's plan to kill the entire surface world or just to destroy all their militaries so that they had to like so that they were humble? Like, because the way he was talking about it made it seem like he wanted everyone on Earth dead except for them. And I'm like, that sounds really boring. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like, if you're the only people on Earth, like... That sounds like a really boring existence. It sounded like that to me too. And I thought that, you know, I I have lots of thoughts about his motivations and it was interesting too, because his people originally came from like from the land and like, presumably there are still like people, innocent people on the land who aren't, you know, conquering folks. So I thought, you know, maybe destroying the whole world is, is a lot, you know, just, because I thought he, I like, I really liked Namor. I thought he was really interesting. I thought it's just a really cool character. And then like, no, I mean, you want to get rid of everyone on earth. No, that kind of makes you a little less sympathetic. As it also just, it felt like his motivations were shifting all the time. Like, especially in that scene where he's talking to Sherry and he was just like, no, it's not, we no longer can find peace. We just, you know, it's not just about Riri Williams. It's about the entire world. And I was like, I was like, pick a lane here, man. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I get that you're like this this villain, but this doesn't make any sense. Like I feel like you're just acting out of emotion, but you're supposed to be this like great leader, and you're act you're not acting out of like logic or what's actually best for your people. I do agree with that because it's like like Shuri goes to Talokan so that he won't kill Riri. He tells her, I want to kill Riri. Then he gives her the backstory, takes her underwater, and he's like, This is why I need to kill Riri. And then two minutes later, he's like, It's not about Riri. And I'm like, dude, couldn't you have had that like uh, that shift makes perfect sense to me. I totally agree with what he's saying. It's not about Riri. People know how to do this. Just because they kill her doesn't mean someone won't stop. You know, it, do- it doesn't mean that someone can't do it again in the future. Like, why can't they go to Sh- uh, to Riri, I almost said Shuri's professor, and, like, get the plans for the vibranium machine? Like, she had to turn that in for a grade, so there's some school academic record of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, it's not about Riri, because anyone can make a vibranium machine, like, in that kind of world that they're living in. But that shift, I do agree, would have been, like, a little bit more natural if it happened when Shuri was first brought there. And, like, like her first interaction with Namor, like, in that grotto, if it had been that it's not just about Riri anymore. Um, but I, I will also say that I hated Namor with a burning passion walking out of my first viewing. Not in, like, a he's a bad character way, but I have never felt such contempt for a Marvel villain walking out of that movie for the first time. Even I Thanos? was, like, even Thanos. I'm, like, at least Thanos, I'm, like... You, you know, like Thanos had Thanos had certain points, very bad, um, very bad like ways of going about it. But like the what Namor did to those people, I was just like my jaw was open when Shuri had him like on the ground. I was like, kill him. I was like, who cares? Just kill him. And I'm like, I know you can't kill him because he needs his own movie and all this other stuff in the MCU. But I was just like begging her to kill him. And I mean, I guess that's good because it shows that Marvel made a good antagonist. You know, you mentioned uh, Shuri not killing him. Do you think that would would we would people still respect Shuri? Would she still be um, who she is if she had made the choice to kill him? Because that seems like a pretty pivotal moment. From the way the story was set up, it would have really mimicked Killmonger, which I think is what they were trying to show is that she's not Killmonger and that she's also was trying to like at first get revenge and it wasn't a you know the difference about is that about the avengers is that they're trying to avenge people not get revenge and so i think like her motive was slightly different even though you're totally right everybody has so much blood on their hands in these movies that it's ridiculous but she she had the motive of trying to set out to hurt him on purpose because she had been hurt and she wasn't just trying to hurt for you know her mom but she was i think she was also had the grief of her brother that she was also throwing into that and so it was it was compounded and i think that's where it's coming from and i'm glad she almost didn't kill him because i think that it would have looked wrong to have this new black panther be the one to just lead with like this iron fist of killing someone and said she showed mercy and that is who her mother was and that's what her mother would have wanted and that is exactly what should have happened in my eyes. And there's that flashback too to the ancestral plane with with her mother that makes that point. You know, if right there that you know her mother believes that she she's you know better than that, and that the Wakandans are better than that. And I, I mean, I do agree with that, but I mean, I would also say that like yes, the Avengers avenge people, but Shuri killing Namor would be avenging Ramonda. Um, 
but I mean, also in that same vein, Killmonger. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't, I want to get into the whole Killmonger stuff right now because I have, I have separate thoughts on that. But, um, but yes, I agree that it would have felt very Killmongery to kill Namor. That would have tipped her into the camp of being like her father and Killmonger, who are people that she definitely, like, she definitely has some of their instincts, but she isn't, she, she isn't them, and. Something else about Wakanda Forever is that after my first viewing, I was like, oh, I wish that we got anything about Shuri and her dad because we never saw them interact apart from her saying like, she says like, oh, first Baba and now my brother after they think T'Challa's dead in the first movie. That's the only time she ever mentions him. We know nothing about Shuri and T'Chaka, which is something I had kind of like wished that we got in this movie. But then, I mean, it also clicked for me that the first Black Panther movie is about fathers and sons, and the second Black Panther movie is about mothers and daughters. And Shuri's arc, I think, in this movie perfectly mirrors T'Challa's from Civil War and from Black Panther, right down to that same line used when she's standing over Namor, like that vengeance has consumed us line from Civil War. And... um, And I also think that it's very powerful that she makes the decision to be like Ramonda, like... T'Challa made the decision to not be like Zemo and not be like the Avengers in Civil War. And he made the decision to not be like his father in Black Panther. So I like that Shuri makes the decision to be like her mother, who, even though she didn't really agree with her on certain things at the start of the movie. There's almost a hint of the um, of the father story, though, like a moment of bonding because Riri has the car, right? And it's towards the end of the movie and the car was Riri's father's. And, you know, Shuri, Shuri understands there's that like unspoken, almost, um, you know, bonding of grief that the both, both of those uh, women have, you know, undergone there. And I think that's kind of a nod to the story with her father, too. That's interesting. You know, I actually, um, like, I read that moment as her still feeling the loss of like T'Challa and her mother, like, in, in none of my six weeks did I ever think about T'Chaka, but that, that is like, that would be like an interesting like bond like bond over grief that they could explore with Riri and Shuri in the future. You know, something interesting, Ude, that you brought up was that about how the first movie was about fathers and sons, and this one's about mothers and daughters. And I think that there is another mother-daughter relationship that is brought up in this film that not a lot of people were talking about. And not in the traditional sense of mother and daughter, but I think that one of the integral relationships in this film was also Romanda and um, Okoye and how there was this there was this relationship almost like a mother that she like looked up to her and she had this esteem for Romanda and when Angela Bassas gave us that fantastic scene that gave gives me chills every time I see it of just about talking about losing everything there is this like broken relationship be- between like a disappointed daughter and, and a mom and i thought i think that's also a very interesting thing when you when you talk about this movie being that dynamic that that is such an important part of this film going through because we see it in multiple stages from like a very strong relationship at the beginning to a broken one before ramonda dies and we don't get to see or we don't get to see any reunion or made better with that and um and I mean, also, Ramonda's called Queen Mother, right? She's she's the mother to all of Wakanda. And that's not something that they really explored in the first movie. But, like, you really feel it here, you know, like, with Nakia and Okoye, like, crying and, like, calling her, like, mother, like, while they tried to uh, revive her. 
And even like what Killmonger says, like about how Ramonda sacrificed herself to save Riri. Like that also is kind of like a motherly moment. And um, and I mean, because Riri had asked if she could call her mom. And I don't think I don't think they let her because we didn't see it. Um, but I mean, Ramonda still protected her like in that same way that like a mother mm-hmm. would. And I think that like that was also like a really powerful moment. I think I don't, I don't remember who says that, but they draw attention to it in the movie, too. They say that, you know, she treated Riri like like one of her own, one of like her mm-hmm. Wakandan family members. And, you know, I think that just you know, hammers that point. In. And not only just that, it also at the very end of the movie, even though it wasn't a mother daughter, but you got to see an, the start of another mother relationship and how, you know, there there's another kid there, you know. Uh, T'Challa has his son and you get to see that motherly instinct um, from Nakia and that I think that is like the perfect like full circle moment we went from you know fathers and sons to mothers to daughters to the fact that we're starting the cycle over again and like I think that's also what this movie was about too was about life is cyclical and like everything comes back around and through that we heal and so the fact that we got to see that new budding relationship of a mother and a child that was so strong throughout this whole series so far. I, I think it was like the right, the right ending. Now I know that we are getting a little bit short on time. So I wanted to bring up um, stepping away a little bit from Wakanda and, you know, bring up uh, Val and bring up Ross and bring up, you know, all of that dynamic and searching for vibranium. And, you know, do you guys think that there are bigger implications for this? What, because Val is revealed to be basically the head of the CIA here and she arrests her husband for treason. Um, you know, there are some big things happening. What do you guys think about that? I think that that whole storyline was a huge setup for what's coming next. And I think we're going to see this play out, you know, in Captain America, uh, New World Order. We're going to see it play on Thunderbolt. I think it's going to play into Wakanda's TV show. Um if that's still happening, hopefully. But I think that there is some huge implications because, she, you know, Val has been this individual who has just like done little tiny spurts of popping up here and there throughout the, the MCU's phase four. And she's scary. She is terrifying. Like when she just, she's just in his house and has the handcuffs and just, she, you know, I ne- first off, I never would have thought, you know, that Julia would have been able to do this. Like I know from Seinfeld, this part's kind of so far removed from that. I think that like we are headed to something. We're headed to a world war of a different kind, and I think that's why you're going to start to see in Captain America: New World Order that part of that New World Order is Vale ready to take over the world. I um I wrote an article back in like October about how. And I mean, this is a feeling I've been having since the summer when they announced uh, like the upcoming slate. So you guys know I haven't loved like all of Phase Four. I have found it to be very disjointed. I've really been missing what? the little connections. <laughs> I've really been missing the little connections between projects. That's like the biggest thing to me is like if something is really good and it's not connected to the MCU, I don't care. But if I find something to be kind of like mediocre or like sloppy, and then it's also not connected, I'm kind of like well, like, why'd you make it if it wasn't, like, if it wasn't that good and it doesn't, like, serve a purpose in the larger franchise, then, like, kind of why does it exist? Um, Which is a conversation that people are having about content in general. 
and obviously opinions differ, but I've really been missing little, little connections, like, like on the level of Tony popping up at the end of the Incredible Hulk. And I, and I wrote this article and I had said something about how like the most anyone's ever appeared in a phase four project is like two times. And Val broke that streak with Wakanda forever by appearing three times and her inclusion set up kind of this future. And that's what the larger article was about, about how we don't have any crossovers before King dynasty. And we need something. We need like an earth level Avengers threat, even if we're not getting an Avengers movie. And I think that that is 100% what Val is bringing in new world order with Thunderbolt Ross and in Thunderbolts, because she is on the team. So I'm really excited. I want to write another like theory about what she's planning. But, you know, we've heard rumors and obviously we know from this movie that she wants Vibranium. And I thought it was really nice to have her in this movie in a little bit of a larger role. I thought like the last two scenes with her were awkwardly edited in. Like, I don't think that they were like awkward themselves, but they were like very short. And I thought just like cut in really weirdly. Um, so I've seen some people saying that they should just remove that that side plot but I do not agree with that at all because it also lends credence to Namor it makes Namor more believable because if he's saying this stuff and you're not seeing anything from like the U.S. you're going to be like well Namor's just making assumptions and he is but those assumptions are backed up by Val's inclusion and and like when when she says that line about how she dreams of like the U.S. being the only country with vibranium like that like gives me chills and like other people like that got a reaction in like the first like four screenings I was in. I'm so glad you mentioned that line because I wanted to talk about that too. And that totally like made her that much more um, interesting of a character because we we didn't really know her motivations before, right? Because she was like, she in Hawkeye, she's like kind of a mercenary almost paid paying to, or like she was paid by Eleanor Bishop to kind of, you know, do um, dispose of someone. She, uh, she recruited somebody us agent in captain america and we like we don't really know what her deal is and now we're getting a real uh clearer sense of her motivations so i thought that was interesting and on your point that like we needed to have everett ross and val as like proof that people did want vibranium that people did have motives um and we're going after wakanda and all of that and and namor and i thought that was that's absolutely right because I think they're the like they're the bad guy of the movie in a way. You know, there's a rumor going around recently that um, the uh, I can't the giant hand from Eternals. I can't think of of what they're called. Celestial, um, right? I the think cele- thank you. <laughs> yeah, the celestial that 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 is adamantium. I think that if that's true, that's going to be playing a really interesting part because that would be America's um, vibranium if they can get it. And so, like, I think that while this search for Vibranium is going to take part, if that rumor is true, Vale's gunning for that. And I think that is what's really going to change the structure of the global MCU going forward, is that there's no coming back from once she gets that, it's going to be game over. I found that rumor to be a little bit interesting because I was like, didn't Cersei turn the whole thing to marble? So even if it was adamantium, it's just like a bunch of marble now. But I mean, I guess we'll see. I do think that that would be really cool. Maybe a very nice way to tie Eternals in. Um, like that that would be probably the best way that they could tie Eternals like so strongly into like whatever's coming next by making that celestial be like the source of a world war for like 
this medal. Um, but I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of people on Twitter being like, oh my God, Val is so annoying. They're like, I just want her to die. Like it's only been three projects and I am like, sick of seeing her. And I'm like, I don't get that. I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus is great. I think that her scenes are really setting or they're kind of charting like a really interesting path for the MCU, especially in this, you know, like kind of earth-based spy level like arena. Um, but I've also, I also think that if you don't get Val, you need to watch Veep. Because if you watch Veep and you realize that Val is basically just Selena Meyer with a purple streak in her hair, um, I think you'll be a lot more scared and also a lot more interested. Because if Selena Meyer had a stash of vibranium, she would totally blow up the entire world, probably by accident. <laughs> and that is horrifying. Uh, I've never seen Veep, but now I feel like I have to go see Veep. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. I've only like I only know her as Elaine from Seinfeld. And I think, it, you know, having had that portrayal, like I think she does a great job as Val because like I don't get Elaine vibes at all. She's just, you know, scary lady. So looking at then, because, uh, you know, Uda, you kind of said about like the espionage, the world, the world structure. Um, she's kind of the big player right now. Do you think it's possible that we see her in Secret Invasion? Because I feel like that is like right up her alley and we know that Everett Ross is going to be in it. And so it feels like it's only a hop and a skip away from getting to see Vale show up in there and maybe get to play a bigger part with more power moves. So so like I said, I still need to I still need to finish my post Wakanda Forever Val theory, but I fully believe she will she will be in Secret Invasion. Although I also thought she would be in Hawkeye and she was like just barely like not even mentioned by name. So, although again, could have been COVID restrictions, maybe she couldn't shoot a cameo. Um, so I hope to see her in Secret Invasion. I think it would make a lot of sense. But that kind of ties into my belief that Armor Wars is going to be like where this world war for Wakanda happens. And if you'll notice, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier is like the only project that is tied to New World Order and Thunderbolts and... Um, and Armor Wars, because of, like, Rhodey and Sam and Sam, yeah, that's his name, <laughs> Sam Wilson, <laughs> um, and Bucky. That's Captain America. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> um, well, because I just think of him as Captain America, so sometimes I forget his name. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, like, that kind of intersection is also going to happen in Secret Invasion, because we know we're going to see Rhodey, we know we're going to see Ross and, like, Fury and Hill, and I'm hoping Val. And it's long been rumored that there might be a cameo from Anthony Mackie in Secret Invasion. So I'm really hoping that like Val starts to starts to beef with him a little bit there, even if it's like off-screen beef. And do you guys have any final thoughts on Wakanda Forever that, you know, we haven't talked about anything that you're just, you know, dying to get off your chest today? Six times you saw it. What haven't we talked about? Um, I did want to talk a little bit about Killmonger. Um the scene of him with Shuri in the ancestral plane is one of my favorites in the MCU, if not my favorite. I think I knew he would be in the ancestral plane. That was leaked like a year ago. But and I didn't think that he'd be nice now, but I didn't think he'd be so mean. Um, and I thought that that was a very powerful scene. I thought it was very powerful to point out how flawed T'Challa and her father were, because, I mean, I agree, like T'Challa did let her dad's murderer get off scot-free. And um, and I really loved how angry Shuri was. I don't understand people that don't like her rage. I think that her rage is entirely justified. It is such an interesting place to take her character. And 
like one of the things that I love the most about Wakanda Forever is I feel like it might be the best movie sequel I have ever seen, especially like in the modern era, Um, because I'm sure there's older movies that might have better sequels that I haven't watched, like The Godfather. Um, But I think that the way Wakanda Forever transforms the first movie is like second to none, especially in the MCU. You'll never be able to watch the first Black Panther again without like looking at Killmonger burning the heart-shaped herb and like knowing that that's what dooms like T'Challa and Ramonda. Or even like looking at Shuri being like a happy child, like joking with her brother and then thinking about where she's going to go by the end of the second movie. Um, So I think it just really succeeds like in that regard. I appreciate that they do allow her to be angry and to have that rage because I don't think a lot of the women in the MCU have had that opportunity. Um, I have a lot of problems with how kind of women in the MCU are maybe not totally three-dimensional. And I think just the full range of emotions and getting that character development is something I very much appreciate with Shuri in this movie. I will say about just going back real quick, the Killmonger scene was excellent. I was expecting him to be a little bit more peaceful or like have found a, you know, I don't want to say even peace, but just have found acceptance in his role in all this. And there was still a lot of that anger. And I thought like, how can you have anger when you're in like the ancestral plane and you're like, so everyone just seems so happy and like things are so chill. So that did surprise me a little bit. I am glad to see also the three-dimensional women as well. And I think the one thing we didn't talk about that really stuck out to me about this film is we got Riri Williams and for her introduction, she was a really well-rounded 3d individual, which I was kind of shocked on because, you know, as much as I loved like Agatha Harkness, Agatha is very two dimensional in the fact that she is just a villain. And we didn't really get to see a lot of that yet because it wasn't her story. And while this wasn't Riri's story, you had the excitement of flying in that uh, uh, in her suit and you got the grief of her dad and you got saw a little bit of like, don't touch the car, but then gave in. And then like, there, there's just so many levels and she's so important to the story. And I just thought like, wow, this is how you introduce a character and this is how you do it right. And I hope that that continues in Ironheart and that we don't backtrack on that. I think her introduction was amazing and she is so appealing as a character. And I think if you didn't, uh, if you weren't looking forward to Ironheart before, I think that this movie makes it so like you're excited about it. Well, at least for me, like I, I am so much more excited about Ironheart after this movie. Yeah, I, I loved Riri. I was an Iron Man stan before Age of Ultron when Wanda stole my heart. And now that Wanda's taking a little break and we've got Riri, I can just feel that like crawling out of my <laughs> crawling out of my heart again, like my Iron Man love. Um, But I, I love Riri and I'm so excited for Ironheart. And the last thing that I wanted to say is on that like kind of three-dimensional women comment, um, the movie that was supposed to kick off phase four was Black Widow. Um, and WandaVision ended up going first. Uh, I thought WandaVision was a good portrayal of like of a three-dimensional woman. And Black Widow was as well for the most part. But I do think that one thing that stood out for me in Black Widow was they couldn't let Natasha still have skeletons in her closet, which is why the worst thing she ever did in her life, which was killing a child, uh, was undone in that movie. And that was like the one thing that I really hated about that movie. And so I love that we're kind of ending phase four with a three-dimensional woman who, yeah, Shuri isn't going around killing Namor, but I think that she got closer to that line than like any other Marvel hero. And I really, really enjoyed how far they were willing to push her. 
Well, I think that might be all the time we have. And I think that's a really great note to end things on. Um, so thank you again for being here with us. Um, tune in next time for more awesome nerdy discussion. And until then, you can read more of our stuff at thecosmiccircus.com. Thank you.